0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi Cardinal fans, I'm Ozzie Smith. Smith, corks one into right, down the line, it may go! And you're listening to the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Go
1: crazy folks, go
2: crazy! Here's your host, Brent McMillan. Welcome in to another edition of the Cardinals Insider Podcast. My name is Brett McMillan. Glad that you are with us, an off-season edition of the program. We've been telling you that we're going to have more alumni content coming in 2019 And, in fact, we're doing that here with some of our non-weekly episodes in this off-season. And to talk about one of those, it's Brian Finch from the Cardinals Museum, the manager over there at the Cardinals Museum. And, Brian, you guys do Flashback Friday. You're rolling that out again in 2019. We'll have some of those interviews coming to the podcast in the summer of 2019. But just for folks who haven't experienced it before, in a nutshell, what is Flashback Friday?
3: Well, Flashback Friday is actually a program that um, really came as uh – an offshoot of another program we do. It's Saturday signings. We've been bringing in players on Saturday mornings before home games and have them sign autographs for two hours at the museum. You get a free autograph with admission to the museum uh, before every Saturday home game. And we felt that while we're bringing these players in, a lot of them on Friday afternoons so that they could be sort of in position or in town uh, for the autograph signing on Saturday morning. Well, why not do something with them on Friday so that we could take advantage of them being around We've got a few internal projects as well, one of those being an oral history project. And why not do an interview, host an interview at the museum with our fans? We can record that interview and then uh, let's turn it into a podcast and have some fun with it. So Flashback Fridays is the program that was birthed out of this concept. Fans can come and join us um, a few hours before the game on Friday evening. The schedule is posted online at cardinals.com slash museum. And before every Friday home game, they can interact with a former Cardinals player, And we've got some some players that had great moments in Cardinals history, some players that in some sense may have been passing through. But uh, every player that wore the birds on the bat really had an impact in some way or shape or fashion. And it's really interesting to find out what their takeaway is from having been in the dugout and been in the locker room and been in the clubhouse and the great managers they played for and and uh, what their takeaway has been from being here in St. Louis and playing for this great organization.
2: And it's a pretty intimate feel. That's the thing that jumps out to me. I mean, if people come and it's free with uh, admission to the museum, so it's not completely free, but if you pay to get in the museum, you can sit in the event. And really it's, I mean, what, maybe a hundred people top. So you are up close and personal with these folks. That's right. And a and
3: hundred is really, you know, more than we've ever had. We're really looking at 40 to 50 on average based on what we did this past season. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Of course, I host the interview but towards the end anybody that's there you know live in person gets to ask questions for a few minutes and uh, the players are so down to earth uh, they enjoy that sort of intimate environment uh, the questions that they've been asked uh, I, I know we're going to talk about Bob Tewksbury here he's a mental skills coach and one of the questions he had asked was players that have the yips and how do you work with them and seeing Rick and Hill you know possibly making a comeback in 2019 and and getting over you know these uh, this this issue of, of working through the, the wildness or the loss of control and um, here's a professional in the field who was on the mound you know at the biggest stage of the game as a major league pitcher and now he's working with other pitchers to help them in that same capacity and some of these players are struggling with the yip, so to speak. They can't throw to a base or they struggle to get the ball back to the pitcher as a catcher. And to be able to talk to one of the best of the best in, the, in that environment as a mental skills coach that works for major league clubs, that's pretty fascinating to have that one on one access. So it's really a lot of fun. And that's sort of the serious element of it. Or looking at a Dave Lapointe, who was not only known for being part of our 1982 World Championship Club. But he was sort of the court jester as well, prankster, and uh, giving insight on how to have the you know how to, to have the best hot foot, which was lighting a player's shoe on fire. So uh, we've had stories uh, all the way from great moments on the field to uh, some of the um, you know fun little anecdotes as well.
2: There you go. Bob Tewksbury was over at the Cardinals Museum part of Flashback Friday in 2018. They'll have a full slate coming to you for 2019 as well. Cardinals.com slash museum is where people can check out that schedule. But right now I want to give you a little sampling. It's Bob Tewksbury with Brian Finch here on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. I'm excited today to
3: introduce uh, a former Cardinal who had a fantastic uh, career here in St. Louis that included an all-star um, nod and appearance in 1992. He has written a book previously called uh, 90% Mental, and I'm going to learn how to be a major leaguer as a result because because he's a mental skills coach, and I think that's what I'm lacking most in. No, talent, Brian. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> you can't help with that. So you Start with talent. First. Put your hands together. Let's welcome to the museum Bob Tewksbury. Thank you. Thanks for coming up. So uh, we'll dive right in. We're going to get to the book in a little bit. But uh, we always like to find out, before you came to the Cardinals, Bob, uh, when did you discover that love of baseball in your life? Who was influential for you? And um, at what point in your life did you find that love of baseball?
1: Wow. Um, I, I, you know, I can't remember, Brian. I just know that... um Something I've always loved. I mean, I had the classic story of telling my mom I was going to be a big league ball player, and you know, like every other boy in America, and um, and we lived in a small town in New Hampshire, um, Salisbury. It was a very small town. We had a uh, we're a member of a not the official little league because it was so small. It was a town little league, and uh, there was only four teams in the league, and. Um, You know, and this was in the probably early '70s, '70s or so. So, there's the game of the week was on on Teddy Kubek and Joe Garagiola on Saturdays, and that was the game that I'd watch. And um, uh, I just, you know, the Red Sox. You didn't have all the TV stuff. Certainly, you listened to the Red Sox on the radio. I I was kind of something that I don't know how I fell into it, um, but I did, and I loved. I used to, I used to chart the game of the weeks. you know, for, for pitching to to, you know, I loved it that much, and um, I just got in a, uh, I just got inducted to the my high school Hall of Fame in the first class of the Hall of Fame, and I was recognizing my siblings. I have a younger two younger brothers and a younger sister, and my brother, my younger brother Keith, we used to play catch out on the street, Woodamore Road. Uh, and I always pulled him out there before the snow melted and so he wasn't a big fan of playing baseball or playing catch uh, And I would get frustrated at him because he couldn't throw it back to me and I'd have to chase it And then I'd throw it back to him harder and he'd get mad because I threw it too hard And then the game of catch would end, you know quickly But my love of baseball never did and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have played but then also stay in the game in another capacity
3: you were drafted in 1981 by the Yankees and would make your Major League debut in 1986. What was your welcome to the big leagues
1: moment? When I got fined in kangaroo court. Um, my In spring training as a rookie, I had number 75. And uh, I came to spring training with hopes of making the team, and, and I did. I pitched 20 consecutive scoreless innings, Uh, Lou Piniella called me into his office, told me that I made the team. I actually got Phil Necro's number. Uh, I went to number 35. And um, my last spring training game, I pitched, you know, like I said, I finished my 20th consecutive scoreless inning. And the crowd at Fort Lauderdale Stadium gave me a big ovation. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't do anything. I just walked off the mound. Well, a couple of the veteran players that told me the next time you get an ovation like that, you've got to tip your cap to acknowledge to the fans that they appreciated what you did. Got it. So my major league debut, I pitched seven and a third innings against the Brewers. I walk off the field to this huge ovation, and I tipped it three times. It's twenty-five bucks, twenty-five bucks, twenty-five bucks. <laughs> Yeah, they got me. So I'm like, they told me to do it, and then they fined me for doing it. So that was my welcome to the big leagues moment.
3: (laughs) I love it. Um, For the audience here, some folks may understand the the term kangaroo court. Some may not. That's true. Why don't you explain that to us? Because I think that's something that's lost a little bit in today's game.
1: Yeah. uh, How many people are familiar with the term? Okay. So kangaroo court is a... uh, it's a it's not a court of justice it's actually a <laughs> it's actually a dictatorship and it's run by the veterans on the team there's a judge and there's a treasurer and there's a you know the bailiff and then there's a secretary and what you do is you have a fine system if you forget a piece of your uniform it's $25 if you do forget how many outs there are if you walk into the uh, to get food without a shirt on you know there's just all these little things the little cultural things that that take place in a locker room Um, and you can find your teammates so what you do is you write it down on a slip you put it in the box so it's no one knows that you did it and then usually um, once a month on a Sunday when you didn't have batting practice you'd call kangaroo court and the, the the guy would you know some teams had the the big gravel and uh, a big black robe and some teams had a wig and they would sit down and say, all rise, and the judge would come in. It was really, really fun. And then you'd take your case and you'd state your case and they'd read the uh, docket, say, uh, Tewksbury finds Brian Finch for uh, not hustling to first base. And then they'd say, how do you plead? And you should always plead guilty because if you plead not guilty and you state your case, you never win and the fines doubled. (laughs) But those are fun arguments because they create, so it's just a really, really fun thing. And it's really, um, it's something that's kind of faded away unfortunately, Um, but that's kangaroo court.
3: Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned you grew up in New Hampshire uh, you played for the Yankees. Now, did you grow up a Yankees fan, sort of being in the Northeast? Or were no. you more of a Red Sox? Yeah, or? Red
1: Sox. Reggie Smith is my favorite player. He was a Cardinal. Yeah, okay. he was my favorite player.
3: So I, I have to ask about that then. You know, playing for the Yankees for a couple of seasons, uh, what was it like then playing for the rival of the team that you cheered for as a child growing up? Because that's that, obviously that's one of the, the, the biggest rivalries in professional
1: sports. Yeah, I mean, no one – yeah, they, they were. I was playing in the big leagues. None of my, no one cared that I was a Yankee. Uh, but I do remember the first time that I faced the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium, facing guys like Jim Rice and Dwight Evans and Butch Hobson and you know guys that I'd watched. That was surreal, you know, to to really um, be on the field with these people and face them. It's like, oh my God, that's you know that's a guy I watched on TV, you know, and and uh, but then that goes away and. Um, but I remember Yankee stadium, uh, Dwight Evans, I threw a fastball and Dwight Evans hit it back at me on the same trajectory that I threw it at. It was like, and, uh, yeah, that I remember that vividly, but so yeah, no one, I wanted to pitch for the Red Sox, but they, um, uh, they didn't want me. So there's a problem there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so you played for two years in New York. Uh, of course, playing in Yankee Stadium and then just being in the AL East. You got to play at at Fenway Park. And then you come to the National League playing for the Chicago Cubs. The, the thing that sticks out to me there is just getting to play in these classic ballparks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we see them as fans as classic ballparks. I'm curious, from the players' perspective, did they feel classic uh, to you? Maybe oh, on the yeah. field, yes, but behind the scenes, were they as classic there also?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they what's interesting about being in the ballparks like that um Fenway was you know the monsters has anyone been to Fenway I mean it's just special I mean it's you know right we know you know where it's located it's just really nice and it's uh the wall makes it unique and the the stuff that they've done at the park recently makes it really special um uh and and then you know, Wrigley Field was unique. to A lot of day games. Um, the Ivy. Uh, as a member of the Cubs, I didn't pitch very well there, <laughs> so um, I'm glad I came to St. Louis uh, after that. And um, but so and you know those old stadiums. I'm glad that they're still there, and they need to be updated. The new ballparks are are beautiful. Um, but you know what's interesting? Every time you know we have the fortune of going underneath the stadium. So the fans see the playing field is lush. And, the, you know, remember the first time you guys walked out into your first big league park, right? I was at Fenway Park. They were playing the Washington Senators. It was the greenest grass you've ever – it was like heaven, right? It's like, it's like the field of dreams, and I can still remember it. And, and those are things that don't go away. Uh, but so – but when you walk under the stadium <clears throat> to the – players locker room and stuff you really see what the stadiums look there's wires hanging around you know there's there's stuff that you don't see that are always there and I think that's with anything you know you see the outside you know underneath uh, Wrigley Field is a dump you know the the inner it's just awful even now <laughs> but but um but anyway I'm drifting off but the, I love that you know and I've been fortunate to you know I played for the Yankees worked for the Red Sox uh i played for the cubs uh worked for the giants and um you know those are some pretty special franchises that i've been uh lucky to be a part of
3: definitely so your time with the cubs came to a close you were granted free agency and in 1988 you signed with the st louis cardinals now I find in the the opportunities we've had to talk with players really to be granted free agency in that era of baseball. Um, yes, free agency had existed for a number of years, if not a you know a few decades by that point. But um, to have the opportunity to sign with St. Louis in the late 80s, what drew you to St. Louis? Was it purely a matter of Contract uh, You're making this sound or? really, really I'm, I'm sexy. I'm curious. Yeah. No, what happened and was that's why.
1: I stunk with the Cubs. That's what happened. I had an injured shoulder, and they released me. So I became a minor league free agent. So I didn't – it wasn't a fancy free agent. It was a minor league free agent, and they pulled me off the scrap heap. I was going to sign with the first team that showed interest in me. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I got a call from the Cardinals, and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So – they they sought out me. I didn't seek out them.
3: Well, that's fair. And, and here's why I get into that, and not to put you on the spot in any way. But of course, the late '80s um, and really the very early '90s, where where we look back on it historically, and it wasn't a great time in Cardinals history. Um, Mr. Bush, you know the the owner and and frankly the real champion of the Cardinals would pass away, and uh, I think it was September of 1989. Of course, in 1990. Yeah. Whitey Herzog would would leave the team as manager, so you were here during this transitional period that uh, we don't look to as fans, as you know. They a, try to a forget about. That's yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, but but I think it's interesting <laughs> for you to come in '88 and then, and of course, '88 you were, I think,
1: kind of recovering and, and kind of getting your career back on track. Um, well, I talk about in the book uh, the the defining moment for me with the Cardinals, and here's my cardinal career in a nutshell Uh, the Cardinals signed me I went to spring training uh, coming off a major shoulder surgery Mike Jorgensen was the manager of the AAA team Um, and he kept me on the roster I thought I was going to go home my wife we had just gotten married just bought a house Um, and she came down to see me in St. Pete I said I'm probably going to be home in a week my shoulders killing me I'm not sure what's gonna happen. She goes, well, just hang in there. So I kept pitching, my shoulder still hurt, but I kept pitching. And the doctor, the late Dr. Pappas said, it'll get better, your arm will get better. So I kept pitching and it got better and I won 13 games. And the Cardinals needed a starting pitcher, but Whitey didn't think that I threw hard enough. You know, the reports were he's getting people out, but he throws 85 miles an hour, you know, it's not gonna play up here. So they didn't bring me up until September that year I pitched a shutout in Montreal during a pennant race. We were chasing the Cubs in 89. And uh, the next spring was the lockout, 1990. So I started, they started with expanded rosters. I started in St. Louis. I was working out of the bullpen. They sent me back to AAA, back to Louisville. I'm done. I'm like, you know, I've had success. I've been in AAA, I've won AAA. Um, I was really frustrated. And then I got a call. I said, you're going to St. Louis. I came up to St. Louis, and Ted Simmons met me outside the old clubhouse, and he said to me, he said, Tukes, you're getting the ball. This was on a Wednesday. He said, you're getting the ball on Friday, uh, on Saturday against the Expos. If you pitch well, you'll get the ball again. If you don't. And we all, as players, all you want is give me a chance to do this because this can be a grind. You know, this is not a lot of fun in the minor league. It's fun, but it's a grind. And um, just give me a chance to do this because if I'm not going to make it, I'll get on with my life. I'll go do something else. So it kind of scared the hell out of me initially, but then it gave me peace because I knew that it was within my control. So I went back. I was staying up in uh, St. Charles. I got an apartment in St. Charles. And I came in that next uh, set and I, beat the, I pitched seven innings against the Expos. And I thought, whew, that'll give me the ball another five days. And I pitched well again. So then I thought I had two mulligans. <laughs> uh, and then I never went back to the minor leagues. And, and then 1991, I was my first full season in the big leagues wasn't until 1991. And I broke in in 1986. So And then 92 was an all-star, and then unfortunately in 94 not only uh, did I leave the Cardinals, but baseball left the postseason, and that was my free agent year that never happened because there were no free agents. So anyway, that was my career. That's my flash. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Let's talk about the managers you played for in St. Louis. You're pretty unique in that you played for three managers that – are Hall of Famers. They're luminaries in Cardinals history, um, and, and people we really look up to. You. So you came in uh, playing for Whitey Herzog for a short period of time. Came in for
1: Whitey. He, he actually started to like me after I he knew that I could get people out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he resigned, and Red was the manager for a short time. And then Joe Torre came in. And... Uh, you know, I mean, I, Whitey was, as you guys know, I mean, he's so far ahead of himself with the way he managed the bullpen and how he did things and the guys that played for him. Everyone knew that their role was. They knew what, you know, it all fit. And he made, he was communicated and put people in positions to succeed. Um, you know, Red was, Red's a Hall of Famer, tremendous man, but at that point, he's just, you know, he was a coach and he didn't want to manage. He was just... Doing the company job, I won Joe Torrey's first game as a Cardinal manager. We were in uh, Philadelphia, and I see Joe from time to time, and he reminds me of that. Also in the book is one of my defining moments with from Joe Torre. We were in Philadelphia. This is 1990. I, th- I forget it was 91, 92. It might have been. I had the lead going into the. Eight, uh, seventh inning, three to one. I get a lead off, I got gave up a leadoff double, got a guy out, and Joe came out to the mound, and I thought he was going to take me out. It was the eighth inning. I, Lee Smith was warming up in the bullpen. I thought he was going to take me out. So he came out to, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm out of the game. I had already shut down. So he asked me, hey, how you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, I don't know what I told him. But whatever I told him, wasn't good enough he took me out of the game and so lee smith came in walked two guys and gave up a grand slam and we lost and i felt awful because i took myself out of the game and so the next day joe called he called me Tweaksy, and he said uh, "Tweaksy, come here so i went into his office and i was looking forward to seeing him too and he goes uh well i just couldn't i didn't sleep i couldn't wait to go talk to him uh, and he goes, you know, do you know why I took you out? And I said, yes, I took myself out. He goes, yes. And then he said, um, you know, I believe in you. I believe in you as a pitcher. You don't have the stuff that some of these other guys in the league do, but you give us a chance to win. You don't beat yourself. I know what I'm going to get out of you every five days. And he gave me permission to be successful. That's my manager saying, look, I believe in you. And that was huge. And I made the all-star team, won 17 games the next year. And in large part, I think, because of not only Joe, but the St. Louis community, the fans, the people, the organization. Um, it is such a great place to play. And you guys hear that, I think, from any former player that comes here. My son was born, my first child at Kreef Core, hus- in Kreef Court at the hospital there. Um, and uh, it's just a very, very fond place to come back to and one that's always connected to our family so just being here was what I needed for my whole career Joe Torrey the St. Louis fans a chance to play Uh, it was really nice
3: let's talk about the 1992 season a little bit Um, looking back of course it's easy to say 16 and 5 you had the the league's best winning percentage at 762 and a two point one six. ERA. Just incredible. But how did you feel going throughout that season? I mean, I guess what clicked for you? You'd had two solid campaigns the two years before, but effectively around 500. um, You know, you'd gone 10 and 9 in, in 1990, 11 and 12 in 1991, but it really came together for you in 1992. Was it physical and mental, or, you know, just how did you get started oh, and, and kind of yeah, tell us about that? I
1: think I got off to a good start. Um, I actually think I picked up my second win. It's really a probably the highlight game of my career. I pitched the 16th and 17th inning against at home against the Expos in relief and also get the game-winning hit in the bottom of the 17th. <laughs> so I had thrown my bullpen that day, and I'm just hanging out in the dugout. You know, So I threw a 15, 20-minute bullpen, and then uh, we were running out of pitchers, and Joe Coleman says, hey, how do you feel? I said, I feel fine. He goes, good, go get your stuff on. I'm like, great, I can get into this game. So I I pitched two scoreless innings, got the game-winning hit, forgot to step on first when I went over the bag. I didn't think I had to. The players pulled me back. I got home at 2.30 in the morning. My wife's like, where the hell you been? I'm like, the game went 17 innings. You know, she, She'd been in bed with our – Newborn, but um, it was confidence. It was, um, you know, you ask uh, Pagnasi, Pagnasi will say, you know, he threw, I threw more pitches right down the middle that they missed somehow, yeah. and I had, had to have some luck, but I had, to, what's that? They were tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I had great defense. You know, Pendleton at third, Ozzy, Okendo, Lankford, Gilkey, Jordan. I just, Pagnozzi's a gold glover. I think they want me to leave. Good <laughs> kid. Um, so I, I just, all I had to do was throw it over, you know, and let, how could you not throw it over with those guys in the outfield? So.
3: Thinking about 1993 as well, you came back, you went 17 and 10. Uh, with a 3.83 ERA. So, um, weren't named an All-Star that year. So, I'm not sure what, you know, our, our voters were thinking or what the, the coaching staff were thinking that year, you know, across the league to not be named an All-Star. But another fantastic campaign in 1993 um, to put up 17 wins. Just really compelling stats there.
1: Yeah, I think the ERA was a lot higher. I think I gave up more hits that year. But, you know, pitched on the day they scored some runs. I yeah. I don't know. I think – you know, that 91, 92, 93, even the start of 94, I started the year 7-0. and 0, You know, I was just on top of my game. And, and um, you know, it, it, uh, I was able to still sustain a career after that, but not to that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: So after St. Louis, you mentioned y- your, your free agent year, so to speak, never really came for you. Um, would move to the American League with Texas. Uh, and then kind of bounced around between, uh, you know, Texas, San Diego, and then would finish your career with Minnesota. After finishing your major league pitching career, a different career would come for you. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the coaching side of the game, and uh, that's kind of, you know, evolved now into what what you've been doing
1: lately. I had no idea what I was going to do when I retired from playing. I knew that I was going to finish my undergrad degree, which – was in physical education. I did that in correspondence, taking correspondence classes. I was working at the same time for the Nesson, the Red Sox pre and post game. Uh, And I was also working as a minor league pitching uh, consultant. And basically the team identified a handful of players at the upper levels that I would go and try to help in some fashion. And then I got wind of uh, a sports psychology program at Boston University and I thought it's a master's level. I thought if I could get a degree in sports psychology with actual playing, I could carve out my own little niche here. So I waited two years and finally went back to grad school. I got a master's degree in sports psychology and counseling from BU and then the Red Sox hired me to start their mental skills program in 2004 so at that time, I was just in the minor leagues doing mostly lower level stuff. I did that up through 2014, um, so 10 years there. And I started to slowly integrate into the big league team around 2011, 12, 13. Um, I was on that. I was around 13 a lot. Uh, the book talks about the opening. Uh, one of the chapters talks about John Lester's 2013 season where we had a conversation in Oakland and uh, how some things that I helped him with actually helped us down the stretch. Um, so at the time, I was one of the only former players that had done that, there are th- that had gone back to school and got a master's, there are now a handful. And now that almost every team has a mental skills coach on their staff, it, it could be a sports psychologist. To be a sports psychologist, you need a license You have to have a Ph.D. You don't need a license, but you have to have a Ph.D. So I have a master's. I tell everyone I have a master's in sports psychology and a a Ph.D. in pitching. Probably two Ph.D.s. Um, So it's a great combination. Um, The field has grown. So the book kind of came about as a – I always wanted to do it. I wasn't sure how I was going to make it happen or how the narrative was going to go. But we found a great writer, in Scott Miller, who writes for The Bleacher Report, um, and we put this together. And so the book talks about my career, my struggles, seven demotions, two surgeries, traded, released, um, my near-perfect game here in St. Louis. I, I go pitch by pitch in that near-perfect game. I gave up a hit to Franklin bleeping Stubbs uh, <laughs> in the top of the eighth inning. I know he's got a middle name. I just can't say it in public. Um... <laughs> And uh, and it talks about John Lester. I was, Anthony Rizzo was a minor leaguer with the Red Sox. Talks about stuff that I've helped him with. Andrew Miller and Rich Hill. So I was very fortunate to have four pretty prominent players uh, that I met at a young age talk about the mental skills and things that we did. And then there's a chapter on mental skills in baseball. Um, so I think it's a it's a good read especially for Cardinal fans that are aware of my career have a little bit of background and um it's it's been selling well it's gone well it's um been well received and uh I'm happy to be in town I did a signing back in April and um to, you know promoting it tomorrow hopefully some people have some books to sign and I'm going to sign tomorrow you're probably going to tell them that anyway
3: I, I am <laughs> I'm curious to know I always enjoy asking authors whether it's about their their field of study whether they're writing about something historical or whatnot what's the biggest thing you learned from writing this book now obviously you've been in this field you helped define the field so to speak with with mental skills and coaching but what's the biggest thing you learned from putting pen to paper
1: It takes, uh, well, it's a lot of work and you have to have a really good writer um, to help do that. But my own experience was, um, I have so many. I mean, I I was fortunate that I kept a journal when I played. So a lot of that stuff that I recall, I kept track of, which helped. Um, I learned that my wife is my biggest editor. Because there's some things I wanted to put in. And said, no, that's not going in. No. <laughs> no. Yes, honey. So she... I had two editors. I had the editor and then I had the editor. You know, her. Uh, and, um, you know, that it's... I think... I don't... I mean, I'm really kind of confused. Writing it I, I was a... I wanted to do it. I had passion to do it. I think what I've learned after writing it is that people you can affect people's lives people really do read this stuff and they and it sinks in and how powerful the word is you know and uh there's a japanese proverb that proverb that says the uh the tongue is 6 inches long but can take down a man 6 feet tall and so the written word is really powerful and uh it it it's humbled me to know that uh you know i can affect somebody in some way, through my through writing and sharing my story,
3: I know this may not be a fair question, but do you have a favorite story that you got to tell through the book um, that you never really had a platform
1: to tell otherwise? Uh, yeah, the uh, probably the prologue, <laughs> the prologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean the the key which. I guess I could be a that could be a good cliffhanger. now you gotta get the prologue to see what it's about. <laughs> um but uh, there's stories in there that um you know, Joe the Joe Torrey story, the Ted Simmons story, um uh, you know, um, I can't remember there's you know I'm just lost my train of thought with everything. You asked too many hard questions, well, Brian.
3: Well, I told you it'd be an easy interview, so I apologize there. Well, it's a fantastic read. Uh, I've enjoyed diving into it. it. It hooked me right away. There's a story where you talk about taking, literally right off the bat, taking the opportunity to be mental skills coach with the San Francisco Giants. It was a career change for you, and you decided to take a hike up a mountain and that this should be an easy thing to do on your own. And, that's uh, the prologue. That's right. Don't ruin the story. And, um, I tell you what, it's, uh, <laughs> frankly, I would have been in the same shoes that you were in. Yeah. You, I've got this. I've got this. I got this. So, yeah. um, so yeah. it's pretty fascinating. One question we always enjoy asking for any of our former Cardinals players as we wrap up, What was it like playing in St. Louis? What was it like playing in front of these fans? I know since you played and really talking about that ownership transition, now that it's all about ownership, but um, thinking about really what has evolved in the past uh, few decades here, but you got to play for a number of great franchises. You've been involved with even more since you've been retired as a player. Um, What was it like playing in St. Louis?
1: And I hope we have time for, I'd be happy to answer questions, too, if that's part of the program here. But um, as I said, it was just terrific. Um, I loved, you know, CJ is still, the traveling secretary is still a really good friend. Um, He's been there 30-some-odd years. And, uh, but no, I mean, just from the Terry uh, that, you know, was a woman that worked the front desk, and Don Thompson was the, captain kangaroo was at the front door and the you know to the locker room and people are still there
3: i should admit, they call him that because he looks like yeah captain kangaroo, yeah
1: so. um you know mike shannon and and uh and jack buck i used to jack buck and i used to play a game on the stopwatch he had this old classic uh stopwatch the big face uh silver back big face and he goes all right to let's do it for a minute let me know in a minute i up ready go and I, I could get to like 40 seconds. I'd say, hey, that's it. He goes, oh, not even close. Here, I'll do it. And he'd be like at 58, 59, 60 right on the button. And so we had we used to challenge in the dugout. That was our little challenge. So that was really fun. Uh, you know, the, the teammates, uh, good guys on the team, you know, I was fortunate. to. I was really upset that Ozzy didn't mention me in his Hall of Fame speech because I told him, <laughs> I got him into the Hall of Fame. I got him all those ground balls for five <laughs> years. And he didn't mention me one time. Not not nice. I didn't like – I told Ozzy about that. Um, you know, our son was born here, just just tremendous. You know, it's um, – definitely was my favorite place to play. Uh, I would have stayed – I would have signed a club-friendly contract to stay my whole career here if that had come up, uh, and I'm. I wished it had. But so – No, it's great. It's great to be back. I always love coming back because it's so crazy, you know, I just the fans, you know, I flew in. I've been back a couple of times and I'll see somebody and they'll go, hey, Tukes, how you doing? And I'm like, how do you know who I am? You know, but the Cardinal fans know who you are. It's really cool.
2: That was fun. I hope that you enjoyed it. Bob Tewksbury, the former Cardinal pitcher, alongside of Brian Finch from the Cardinals Hall of Fame and Museum. That was the final Flashback Friday conversation of the 2018 season. And of course, we're going to bring you many more of those conversations here as part of our weekly episodes heading forward in 2019. On the podcast, We're back in a weekly format in mid-March. And it's the same thing for our Cardinals Insider TV show. It comes back the 16th and 17th of March. When it airs, depends on where you live. You can find out that information by heading over to cardinals.com slash insider. Hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. Can't wait to be back with you week by week in 2019. Conversations like this. Plus, our stuff that we've done before isn't going anywhere. Still some original conversations to the podcast. Extended cuts of interviews that you see on the TV show. Historical, current roster. We're covering it all in 2019. Season number three of the Cardinals Insider Podcast. The season essentially upon us. February 12th. Pitchers and catchers report. And then on the 23rd, it's the first game down at Roger Dean Stadium. You can hear it on Camo X and watch it on Fox Sports Midwest. It's been fun to chat. Can't wait till the next time that I talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Cardinals Insider Podcast.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.